Your True Self, a show dedicated to raising the consciousness of humanity. Today we welcome back Peter Russell, a leading thinker on consciousness and contemporary spirituality. He's authored more books than I can count on my two hands. His mission is to distill the essential wisdom on human consciousness found in the world's various spiritual traditions and to disseminate their teachings on self-liberation in contemporary and compelling ways. Let's get started. Hey, Peter, welcome back to Know Your True Self. Thank you so much for returning to the show. Oh, lovely to be back with you. Really looking forward to this. I love talking about consciousness, and I love talking about consciousness with you. And prior to this recording, I was thinking about the first time that I became truly interested in consciousness. And I had always had an interest in what other people were thinking and human consciousness. But there was one definable moment in my life in college when I was looking up at the stars above me and I truly started to question everything. Like, what is this all about? What the heck is this reality all about? And I was talking about consciousness at large. And I remember I had come back from that experience and talked to a friend and they said, well, some things are just better left alone. Some things are <laughs> left better unquestioned. And I was like, I want to get more knowledge into this. Like, what yeah. is this experience? And it's something that many of us are afraid to address. So mm. love to hear your story. How did you become interested in consciousness? Because you are an explorer of consciousness. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the seeds I can see go back a long way back to sort of school days, teenage days when, you know, I have discussions with my, you know, mates at school, things about, you know, is there really free will or is it all determined? That sort of question fascinated me. And the question of what we then called the brain-mind problem, that's what it was called then, which was really, you know, how does the brain create mind? How does the brain create consciousness? Where does it come from? And so I could see I was interested in it back then. I mean, I'd love to go back and hear what I was saying back then. Right. It would probably, probably be very naive, but who knows? It might be very wise. We never know. So that was there. And then it more came to a head when I was at college, like you. I was studying maths, theoretical physics. I was good at it. I was fascinated by it. And But I, there came a time when I realized that no amount of physics was ever going to tell me why I was conscious. And yet consciousness is absolutely fundamental to physics. Although physics you know, that has nothing to say about consciousness. All of physics takes place within consciousness. Not all of it. I mean, the experiments we do take place in the physical world. And there's a whole question there whether that's within consciousness or not, which we might get into. But most of physics, you know, the, the hypothesizing, the thinking about it, the theorizing, the drawing conclusions, all of that takes place in the mind. And yet, according to physics, there shouldn't be such a thing as mind. So that was the sort of paradox that got me going and realizing that no amount of physics I thought was ever actually going to lead to a real understanding of what was consciousness because consciousness was what was looking at physics. And I delved into psychology. I did a, a year's course degree in experimental psychology, what's now called neuroscience, thinking that would help me understand consciousness, but they weren't interested in understanding consciousness i learned a lot about the brain and memory and how that works everything it was fascinating but there's no discussion of consciousness itself and then i realized the people who really studied consciousness 
or the way to really study it was not sticking electrodes on the skull, but diving in personally that consciousness is a subjective phenomenon and the way you observe it is observing it yourself in your own experience, that inner inquiry. And that took me into looking at meditation, but particularly it took me, first of all, into Indian philosophy. Not just Indian philosophy, but that's why I focused. But I realized the mystics, the saints, the spiritual adepts were the ones who really explored consciousness. And so that was the first turning point for me in the whole thing, I think. What was the transition like from being in physics where there's this quantitative vocabulary, everything's proven, and then shifting over to philosophy where there's much more of a qualitative vocabulary? It's a, yeah. it's a feeling, it's an expression. There's no equation for how much we love or how much we right. or how happy we are or the emotions yeah. that we have. So during that transition, was it a difficult one or was it more of building blocks on yeah. your perspective of consciousness? I think it was building blocks. It wasn't difficult. The interest in science was still there and it still is there. I mean, I'm fascinated, you know, where physics has gone over the last 50 years since then. Absolutely fascinated by it. So I keep up my interest and the analytical approach and just really began to respect the subjective approach. And later I came to see that this was also scientific in a sense. We use science in two ways. We use science as the current paradigm of reality. So we say science says, you know, there's electrons, there's protons. Science says this, science says that, whatever it is. And so that's the scientific worldview. Science says matter is the reality. That's the basic scientific worldview. But then there's also the scientific process. And the scientific process, the classic description is you have some observation, something you want to inquire about, you form some hypothesis about it, you do some experiment, and you draw conclusions from the experiments, and then you share them with others. This is an important part of the process. In today's world, you publish your results not just for ego satisfaction, but for, so that others can read them and compare them and say yes or no, or there's something wrong with your thinking. And that's how science advances. So there's a distinction between science as a field of knowledge and science as a process of gaining knowledge. And that process of gaining knowledge, I think, is equally applicable to the subjective inquiry into consciousness. We can say, if I practice, if I do this, this sort of meditation, then it might lead me to you know, understanding a certain aspect of self or something like that. And so you do the practice, you see what happens. If nothing happens, you discard it. But if you find, oh, this is interesting, then you've got some results, some conclusion. And then you could say the spiritual literature of the world is people sharing, sharing their results, their conclusions. And that's the way in which we look at, oh, yes, this does work. What I found, this ties in with what these teachings found. So there's a way in which, even in the subjective realm, one is looking for a consensus reality, which is what science is looking for, a consensus reality. So in that sense, it can be thought of as being scientific. Yeah, very much so. Even when I reflect on the birth of the universe, which sometimes I refer to as the awakening of consciousness and mm -hmm. Science will bring it back to the Big Bang or other theories, and religions will bring it to let there be light or other interpretations. Yeah. And it's so interesting that we all are undeniably part of one 
existence. But yet, sometimes we forget about that big picture and we start to compartmentalize ourselves as different from one another based on everything that we've experienced in life, the upbringing, the culture, our education. So along your journey, how have you deconstructed or made sense of all of creation, universal consciousness, um, and what it means. Because I think just a couple months ago, there was a picture from a telescope, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, look how beautiful this image is that was so vivid, and it's still looking at our galaxy, right? It's yeah. not that far away. And to think that, I don't know, there's more stars in the sky than grains of sand on Earth, you know, we're so small, yeah. this is so vast. Do we forget about this? Do we forget about how powerful universal consciousness is it's not just do we forget about it can we even encompass it i mean you know i'm like you i love gazing up at the stars always have done and particularly when it's a clear night and just realizing all i'm seeing the stars i'm seeing are just the stars that are very close by and maybe you know on a clear night there's a faint glimpse of the milky way and i think you know what we're doing there is it's like we're looking out of our window across the town we see the street lamps and the car headlights that are sort of, you know, in our part of town. And in the distance, we see the sort of the glow of the light from the rest of town. That's like the Milky Way in the distance. And then realizing, you know, in our little tiny Milky Way, well, it's not that tiny, but our Milky Way galaxy is one of trillions. There's more galaxies out there than there are stars in our own galaxy. And it's like, my mind cannot expand that far. There's just this feeling of awe and immensity. It's all coming up from consciousness. It's like all of this is my consciousness trying to grasp it all. Who knows how many, you know, conscious systems there are out there. I mean, when you do the math, you know, even accounting, you know, just one in a thousand stars gets life started, and even then one in a thousand actually gets to the stage of moving beyond simple cells. Even then you've got trillions of stars out there with conscious beings on them it's like wow or at least they had at one time or another i mean who who knows how long the sort of consciousness we have lasts it may just be a blip our particular consciousness may you know come and go in a million years here which is just you know a wink in the eye of god in terms of that and maybe maybe what happens across the universe is always little stars with planets consciousness at some stage winks in and out it comes in and out like we are winks in and out like little flashes of consciousness appearing on all these trillions of stars with conscious beings like, ah here's one and then it goes but you know we can't contain that immense it's just awe and that when i look it's just awe and beauty and just wonder and here we are this marvelous incredible creation of the universe that's able to be aware of itself and it's like wow in this little corner of the universe, this being has arisen, this species has arisen, which can actually look out into the depths of the universe. It can look back in time into where we might have come from, look down into the structure of matter and life. It's like this being has arisen, which can actually observe the whole thing. I think it was George Wald years ago who said, yes, a human being is a star's way of understanding stars. <laughs> I love that. I yeah. love that. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So even your own consciousness and your own evolution, as you got into Indian philosophy and meditation, how did that strengthen your own personal connection with universal consciousness, God, spirituality? What was the evolution of that? Well, as part of the context, when I was 
around 13 years old, I rejected religion. I was brought up, you know, Protestant, Anglo-Saxon, Church of England, in a very lax way. You know, we went to church once a month, but that was probably enough to get rid of our sins for the month sort of thing. But, you know, most people in the village did. It was just a sort of, it was a social habit thing that one did. And then at 13, I went through the process of confirmation, where you become a confirmed member of the church. And I realized in order to become a confirmed member of the church, I had to sign off on the Nicene Creed, which is a creed. This is what you believe in. And you know, I'd been to church as a kid and chanted. I think it's just something you chanted. You know, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And it's only because, you know, I could still chant it all out so deeply ingrained. And I thought, what? I don't mind chanting that, but I'm not going to sign off and say, I believe that. Like, no way. So I went to my parents and said, no, no. I'm, they said, fine. <laughs> they said, fine. I, you know, the only time I've been to church since is for weddings and funerals. And so I was, you know, I wouldn't say devout, but I was a confirmed atheist. And religion was a load of weird mumbo jumbo from hundreds, thousands of years ago that had no relevance whatsoever to today with the scientific worldview. It was just, yeah. So that's where I was as a teenager. When I started getting into meditation, this was particularly when I was in India, my time there, I began to realize there was something to spirituality, not so much to religion. I draw a distinction between religion and spirituality, that there was a common core to all the world's spiritual traditions. And that common core had got, you know, shared with other people, but as it was shared, you know, someone would discover it, rediscover this common core and share it with somebody else who shared it with somebody else. And they shared it with their teacher that it went from one language to another. And over hundreds of years, it got sort of ossified in a way, fossilized and became this sort of set of teachings and doctrines and things, which became another religion. And everyone's arguing which religion was right. And I became interested in what was the spiritual awakening that set off all these different religions. So I, was in, I became interested in that common essence. And what I saw they were all saying was that we get caught up in a limited perception, a limited consciousness, if you like, of the world. And that limited perception, you could phrase it as being you know, materialistic. We love money, et cetera, more than God in some. But one way or another, we get into a limited, self-centered, materialistic mindset about things and they're all saying there's much more than this in one way or another one language or another one way of putting it there's much more than this and we can free ourselves from this limited mindset and when we do free ourselves from it first of all we find ourselves becoming happier more at peace but also we become more loving because we sort of remove the veils to our natural lovingness which is there so i became fascinated by how that i could see that in all the great traditions there's this common essence and my sort of own interest became, you know, what is that essence? How can that essence be distilled? What's it all about? Because I was also feeling at this time that the world was heading towards crisis. Um, you say we're now headed into it. But so many aspects of that crisis came back to human thinking, human decisions, human values, basically to, you know, human consciousness coming back to that egocentric materialistic consciousness and so the way through these times part of the way through when we need to do as much as we can to let's say save the world but you know undo some of the damage and make it a more hospitable place 
as much as doing that, we needed to get to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem was, you know, we're caught in this limited consciousness. So it became more and more priority for me is how do I share this understanding of what is the essence of spirituality and do so in ways which are appropriate to the 20th century, as it was then, in ways that are, you know, they fit into a, a reasoned, rational understanding, scientific worldview. How do I share these ideas that, that fit in to today's understanding? Because, you know, religious terms from 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years ago may have been appropriate then in that culture, but today they're just religious mumbo-jumbo. So that was another big transition, seeing that there was, there was something underneath all the world's religions. And your applications of teaching that came in a lot of different ways. You've helped individuals and you were working with a lot of organizations at that time too, right? And how were you translating teachings of consciousness and this philosophy to the business world? Yes, that was a fascinating phase of my life. That was, yes, that was in my sort of 30s and 40s. I, I became one of the sort of the early pioneers of personal development workshops and corporations when it was they were just sort of beginning to be interested in this stuff. I was living in England, but I was coming over to America because I had books published and I was doing lecture tours and things. And when I was over in America, I'd go to places like Esalen and, and meet up with other interesting teachers and explore some of the work they were doing on consciousness and personal development. Also with my own readings on spirituality and then go back into the, into the corporations I was working with and say, okay, how can I introduce this to them in had to be completely neutral ways. If I said anything which had any a word that had anything to do with any sort of spiritual connotation, religious connotation, they'd run a mile. So even meditation, I wouldn't use the word meditation, wow. but I'd sort of say we'd be exploring something. And I'd say, well, let's see, you know, maybe if we look at our own internal imagery, maybe we can get some insight here into what's going on with this problem, etc. And so I'd lead them in meditations. And they'd be, oh, yes, yes, let's do that. And so... It became a fascinating work for me. Right. I know you talk a lot about now that we're in a spiritual renaissance because of all of the information that we have. When you said that the last time we recorded, it made me go back to the Upanishads. And when I read that, and I love how you put that together, it's so beautiful about the true self. I remember the importance of spiritual teachings for children, not at a very young age, but for the beginning of their life, a lot of time was spent understanding this connection that we have to universal consciousness. And there's a lot of information that we have out there now currently about consciousness, but there still seems to be a gap because traditional education and the sciences doesn't like to acknowledge consciousness. I think one of the reasons is, is because it naturally goes to religion and no one wants to talk about religion and education but what would be your hopes for how we start to educate the youth about consciousness and about the reality that we're part of how does that need to transform for us to flourish in this next era of humanity yeah one thing go back pre-youth we can go back to you know elementary school and some people are doing this just introducing meditation but in a very simple way, just, you know, I know people are just getting kids to stop for a minute and just say, stop, you know, what are you, what are you noticing? 
Oh, I'm noticing the sound of the bird. Okay, what are you noticing in your body? Oh, I'm noticing my breathing. I'm noticing this. Just doing this, you know, gently, fairly regularly, giving them the idea that, oh, yes, I can actually pause. I can look within because we're not, there's no inclination in our current education system to actually do that, to look within rather than just looking without. And so simple things like that can, I think, really set the right tone so that it becomes a natural thing to do, to pause. I was talking actually yesterday, no, two days ago, Saturday, to a school teacher who was saying she'd come across this model, four parts of the brain, but it's four parts of the personality, really. But she was drawing it as a brain and she works with kids around six, seven, eight years old. You know, This part of the brain is the bit that wants to get things done. This part of the brain is the bit that wants to hide how I feel. And the kids had learnt this vocabulary. And she was in, in this situation with a couple of kids. They were sort of having a seeing things differently. And she said, well, well, what part of the brain is this coming from? Said, oh, th this is coming from this part. And the other kid, oh, I was coming from this part of my brain. You know, for that then to become a natural language that one can be introspective in this way. And that's, that's what it's really about. I think it's not so much about you know, the deeper philosophical stuff of understanding consciousness and its relationship to matter, which you know can be interesting. It's interesting to me and to some people, but it's really about being open to inquire into the nature of your own consciousness, into your own mind and how it works and see how you get caught up in stuff and see where you can get free and how to free yourself and discover that as you do that, life becomes more enjoyable, which is you know, the ultimate goal of what we're all looking for in the end is we're looking for ultimately a better state of mind, a better state of consciousness. Oh, it's beautiful to see children having that chance to learn mindfulness techniques, self-awareness techniques, and being the object of your own observation seems a lot easier when you're a child, Part of mm -hmm. partly because you're in a theta brainwave state, mm -hmm. so you're a little bit more intuitive. But then there's still a big challenge with a lot of adults who have all of these mm -hmm. belief systems that they've come to sign away on. Like, I, I believe in this, I believe in that. And if yeah. they, they have to look inward and those things that they believe they are part of that define who they are, are taken away. I mean, it can put them into crisis and it mm -hmm. happens with people I coach personally. It takes them a while to even get to the root of the true self because there's so many layers that have to be right. peeled back and every layer that they peel back, they start saying like, I feel more and more uncomfortable about yeah, yeah. myself until they have that release moment. And that release yeah. moment is, is so important. Yeah. 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 And it's just like, ah, there's always an aha. And with that release, there comes a sense of always relief goes with the release. Because right. I think, you know, in our culture, we're so busy, you know, as you say, we're stuck in all these different mindsets and belief systems, and we're trying to achieve this or get somewhere. And in that moment of letting go, it's just like, ah, it's like coming, coming home. And when I mean, you mentioned the true self, I mean, the game was, you know, part of my own journey was when I first started looking into this, you know, I was conditioned partly by, I think this thing of looking for something, we're always looking for something that's going to be it, some goal, something that's going to satisfy us, it's going to get somewhere. So I was reading the Upanishads and it talked about, you know, the true self, the pure self. And I was thinking it's going to be this wonderful, exotic, ecstatic moment. And you know, it became something I was going to achieve. If I meditated for years, I might achieve this. And just over the years, it's got 
softer and softer and less and less of a thing and just realizing, hang on, it's not about going anywhere or getting anything or being any different. It's just letting go of all this stuff that fills the mind, that's conditioned into us, all these different belief systems, all our socializing that goes on, socialization that goes on. And just behind that, here I am, here I am. And it's that simple, but we make it so complex. We love to make things complex. Oh, oh the true self, it must be this. We read this stuff and it all gets sort of incorporated in this model of this, you know, wonderful, you know, bliss of enlightenment. No, it's just that ease and contentment of coming home to oneself. Yeah, extremely difficult for people to come home to oneself, mm. especially given how much the material world is mm. omnipresent in our life. And I've even experienced that with individuals I work with is you hear the word authentic self and people want to take a picture of it. Well, this is me and my clothes that are my authentic self and my style and the backdrop. When your authentic self, uh, the name self, as you've brought up, I believe, in in your books is a little bit of a trap because it alludes to the fact that there's some structure. Yes, exactly. (laughs) The self is actually selfless. (laughs) It is boundless. And I think that's hard for people to come to grips with that you might like these things in the material world, but they're not part of you they're not part right of you. yes yes there's so much around it. i like to think there's three different selves three different senses of self there's the egoic self which is what we often talk about oh that's you know my ego myself the egoic self is the peter russell that you know identifies with being an author being a male whatever it is and i have these beliefs and views and i believe some of my views are right that's the egoic self, and this is what I want, this is what I need in my life. And that's there for purpose. It's there basically to help this organism survive, be safe. It's got a very useful biological purpose, which is looking after this body, looking after this being in this crazy world. What do I need to survive? That's the egoic self. As it's useful at times, but a lot of the time it's completely screwing things up. <laughs> then there's the authentic self, which is the self that's free from that identification. And so the authentic self is still is still me. It, it's the me that has a name called Peter Russell. It's the me that I recognize I have preferences. I have these needs. But the authentic self is the me that's there that's free from those. That, that's the authentic me. It's not conditioned by all these up my upbringing stuff. That's just, ah, ah, here I am. And then there's the what's called the pure self or the true self, which is just the I that is aware of all this, the I that is aware of my authentic self, the I that is aware of my egoic self. And that's the I that, as you say, you cannot put any labels or anything on it. It is beyond any description. So many religions say it is ineffable, meaning it cannot be put in words because it is not a thing. It is not a thing. And yet it is something that is so, so familiar so familiar i mean i sometimes ask people a question not who are you who are you takes you off into the egoic self if you're not careful i ask people are you take out the who are you and the answer is well yes yes i am i am period it's that simple so sometimes i feel like spiritual teachers like yourself that are in the field of consciousness there's an illusion that 
you're out there meditating all day, walking on water around lotus trees, but we're all living real human <laughs> lives here, right? Yes. So what types of challenges have you faced through your own evolution just as being a human? And has there been moments when you just felt like, man, I have this knowledge and this wisdom and these practices, but there's still things on earth that are jolting me. How are you able to navigate those with more peace, love, and grace? Ah, that is, you know, that's an ongoing challenge. I mean, I'm interested in the whole thing and the awakening, the evolution of consciousness. That doesn't mean to say I am some enlightened being who is free from all this stuff and I don't get anxious or worried or concerned or whatever or have my own goals. I'm right in the world like you and everybody else as well. How it serves me is you know, knowing I can step back into both my authentic self and then back into the beingness, that self. When I'm there, there's a freedom. There's a real inner freedom. There's a real, there's a stillness. And the more I can be abiding in that, be having that be there while I'm in the world, then I am able to interact with the world that is free, I was, let's say more free of the ego mind and so more able to act with wisdom with compassion hopefully with more compassion in the world not get so stirred up by things that don't go the right way or by horrific news is like oh my god yes feeling that is the compassion not getting so twisted up by things being able to approach things in a way that's just that much more cool calm Stones would say cool, calm, and collected. So, you know, it's an ongoing, gradual thing, but it's about having inner stability that's along there with what I do. It comes from the practice, not from the understanding. You know, this is something which I think everybody will say, and I would emphasize as much as we can understand all this stuff about consciousness that we're talking about here, the practice of slowing down, letting the mind become still noticing how that is, savouring it, being able to rest in that is really, really essential part of all this. Wonderful advice for anyone that's looking to achieve more peace and joy mm -hmm. in this chaotic and unpredictable world. Peter, thank you so much again for joining us today. We look forward to having more discussions with you and sharing your insights about consciousness and the human experience. Great. Really enjoyed being with you again, Jane. Really thank enjoyed you. it. Thank you so much for joining in. Always remember you have a choice. Take an active role in your own evolution. Know your true self. Music